it looks like enough people on. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, just want to confirm one more time that you all can hear me. Yep. 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 Okay. All right. Perfect. All right. So um, today I'm, I'm going to talk to you all about the project that we're hopeful is going to get funded through the VA um, Health Services Research Office. Um, and uh, this has been like a labor of, uh, of love over the last, um, I don't know, seven years or so. Um, it's not, um, you know, directly what I do with regards to my clinical translational research. Um, and I'll share the story with you and, and sort of uh, tell you how, how this materialized. Um, so we're going to talk about self-titration of blood pressure medications in CKD and utilizing it as a novel approach for managing blood pressure in this patient population. Um, okay, so as you all know, um, even outside of chronic kidney disease, a significant number of individuals with hypertension have been reported not to achieve blood pressure control. And um, this slide is old. It's from data from 2014, um, looking at the days where um, we followed the JNC7 uh, guidelines, which were quite a bit more forgiving um, than the current guidelines that we have with regards to hypertension. Um, and you can see that um, amongst patients who are um, treatment um, eligible, the slide shows the percent of individuals um, who achieve um, blood pressures within the guidelines. And you can see that we um, struggle with, uh, we have struggled historically with abysmal numbers. Um, and this data is from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which is a very, very large survey of data that represents the US population. Um, since then, people have looked, and I don't show that data here, but they've looked at, um, uh, you know, uh, blood pressure control with the more recent guidelines. And the reality is that over the last decade, I think our management of blood pressure has improved. However, we still have about two thirds of the population, give or take, that do not achieve their more recent blood pressure guidelines. Um, and that data was the premise of, um, you know, looking at multiple interventions over the years, over the decades to try to improve blood pressure control. And there's a variety of interventions that have been evaluated in the literature. Um, you know, some include self-monitoring of blood pressure. Um, some include um, uh, uh, pharmacist um, management of uh, blood pressure um, and so on and so forth. Um, and they have all been reported with variable degrees of, uh, of success. Um, in 2010, um, this group led by uh, McManus um, et al. out of uh, England um, evaluated self-monitoring and self-titration of blood pressure in the primary care uh, setting in the United Kingdom. Um, and in their first study, they took a little over 500 individuals, randomized them to self-monitoring and uptitration of blood pressure medications versus control. Um, their control was just basically people coming in for follow-up with their primary care provider, um, receiving no specific education outside of their regular practice um, to achieve blood pressure control. And at approximately 56 months, they showed that the um, self-management group 
um, had a significantly lower blood pressure um, compared uh, to the control. The study at the time included a very small number of high-risk individuals um, and had hardly anybody with uh, chronic kidney disease. And so they followed up on this uh, with another study that they conducted um, in individuals at high risk. Same group um, did a randomized clinical trial within the United Kingdom healthcare system between the years of 2011 and 2013. Um, they defined poorly controlled hypertension as a systolic of greater than 145. Um, and uh, sorry about that, individuals um, needed to have one um, high uh, risk um, factor. So they could either have chronic kidney disease stage three or diabetes or a history of stroke or transient ischemic attack or coronary artery disease defined as bypass, uh, myocardial infarction or angina. And once these subjects were identified, they had the charts reviewed um, by uh, a family doctor um, who then approved um, the, the subjects for participation in the study. Um, so um, I'm gonna show you the design um, for the study just because I think it's interesting and it's what we base our more recent intervention on. So, you know, they consented and randomized um, subjects. The randomization scheme was computer generated, generated um, and they um, tried to apply minimization in order to balance the subjects by age, sex, cardiovascular risk, and baseline blood pressure. Subjects were randomized either to self-management or the usual care. Usual care was basically they came in and saw their family uh, physician or primary care provider. Blood pressure was measured. They evaluated their blood pressure targets um, and the, the family medicine person adjusted their medications. Um, for the self-management, they were basically taught by the provider to self-monitor their home blood pressure. They were given a titration plan that included um, two to three um, titrations of blood pressure, and they provided a paper algorithm um, to them um, and said, you know, if your blood pressure is greater than this at home, then you want to increase this medication, and then you want to add um, that medication. And they ensured that the self-titration protocol was approved by the primary care provider. If um, the patient had used the three steps they provided in the algorithm, then the patient had to come back to the primary care provider to have additional therapy um, done. And um, what they were um, able to, to show is a uh, significant improvement in um, systolic blood pressure um, with the intervention and with diastolic blood pressure with the intervention. So in the first row here, they show you the mean baseline blood pressures, which were similar between both groups on average about 143 millimeters mercury. Um, both improved just a touch, but the intervention group improved more so at six months. And then uh, the intervention group looked even better um, at the 12 month follow up uh, with a more significant uh, difference in, uh, in blood pressure um, control. Um, and the same thing goes for uh, the diastolic. Um, you know, the diastolic blood pressure improved a little bit in the usual care arm, but improved quite a bit more um, in the intervention arm. Um, they 
um, showed, um, you know, what number of medications were um, included because they needed to prove that this was due to increased titration of blood pressure medications. And there was a significantly larger number of antihypertensive drugs prescribed at the six month visit in the intervention group and at the 12 month visit um, as well as compared to the usual care, suggesting that when you teach patients to uptitrate their medications, they do end up um, using more blood pressure meds. And this is how they achieve um, their, their better blood pressure measurements. Um, they also evaluated um, safety um, and they looked at you know, things like fatigue, um, shortness of breath, sleep difficulties, but they also looked at dizziness, um, ED, the development of rash, um, and they showed no significant difference between uh, both groups. And so they concluded that self-titration um, is safe. And I, I remember presenting the results of the study at the journal club um, years ago when it first um, came out. And, and everybody at the time said, oh, this is gonna change the way we manage blood pressure in the clinical setting. Now we're all gonna be um, you know, teaching patients how to manage their blood pressure um, at home. And I personally don't, don't think that has uh, materialized over the years. Seven to eight, four or five, seven to eight. Um, anyway, in, um, and so around that time, I was the clinical director for the CKD clinic at the time. And, at the University of Colorado hospitals, we actually did a little bit better than the national published data for blood pressure control, but we didn't do well enough. We still had, depending on when you pulled the data, somewhere between a third to a half of our patients who did not achieve blood pressure control. And so we needed to have some sort of a quality improvement project to accomplish this. And we thought at the time, well, could we use this model of healthcare delivery and apply it to our patients in the CKD um, clinic. And you know, would applying this in, in our practice um, be realistic? Um, and I think unanimously, a, a large number um, of our providers at the time um, voiced considerable apprehension um, about this. You know, um, first of all, people were saying, well, you know, it's much harder to control blood pressure in CKD patients just by virtue of their CKD disease, of their chronic kidney disease. Um, a lot of people were saying, well, these, these people are at increased risk of acute kidney injury, so you're going to let them uptitrate their medications on their own. They're not going to do well um, just because it's safe in other high-risk populations. It's not necessarily um, going to be um, safe um, in, uh, in CKD. And so we decided to take that intervention and adapt it um, some. Um, and uh, this at the time is, is what, what we proposed. So the current care model that, that we had in our practice, which I think is what the majority of us um, practice is that you know the provider recognizes the blood pressures above the goal when they see the patient in clinic. Um, they decide to increase blood pressure meds or add a new agent. Um, somebody educates the patient regarding the plan and says, do this, and, and then hopefully the patient goes home and does what they were told to do. Um, under the proposed care model, you would have a healthcare team role as well as a patient role, and the healthcare team would still, um, you know, recognize that blood pressure is above the goal, but instead of deciding on one change in medications, they would come up with a medication titration plan. They would say, well, 
let's start with this one. And then if this one doesn't do it, we're going to add that other medication and then we're going to increase um, the dose. Um, and under what we proposed, we delegated um, the clinical pharmacist to go ahead and educate the patients as well as oversee um, self titration um, of uh, home blood pressure medication. Um, and the patient would assume a more active role in their care where they would learn how to measure their home blood pressure and then recognize that the blood pressure is above the goal. They would look, reference their medication titration plan and determine the need to either increase or add a new agent according to their titration plan. They would communicate with the clinical pharmacist and then the clinical pharmacist would review um, what's being done and update the orders in the system. And so we thought this might be a reasonable plan. At the time, we did have a clinical pharmacist who did have some FTE assigned to our CKD clinic. And we thought, well, let's give this a run and see um, how it goes. Um, and we proposed this as a, um, a small grant application. At the time, the university hospital offered um, $25,000 grants over the course of one year to do some of these um, uh, pilot um, projects that are related to clinical care um, in the clinics. And um, what we proposed at the time was that we would identify um, patients with uh, chronic kidney disease and uncontrolled hypertension. Um, we defined CKD as an estimated GFR less than 60. And we defined uncontrolled hypertension as an average blood pressure of greater than 150 over 90. Um, and this was all um, well before the um, AHA ACC, ACC guidelines for uh, lower blood pressure targets. And then, um, you know, we had an age inclusion criteria. There was a typo here. This should be a dash. Um, it was adults between the ages of 18 and 85. Um, they could have either newly diagnosed high blood pressure or non hypertension, but they could not be receiving more than three blood pressure lowering. Uh, medications, and they needed to be willing uh, to participate. Um, per the intervention that we proposed, we said we're going to identify patients via registry screening. We had a, um, a new EPIC function which could generate a registry, and we said we're going to look back, find all these patients who have uncontrolled hypertension through the registry, and then do a targeted intervention, you know, find those people um, and get them in um, to, to do this. Um, we had the gold blood pressure set by an MD at the time. We had a fellow who was very interested in the management of hypertension, Charles Hopley. So he reviewed every chart and said, this is going to be the target blood pressure for the patient. Um, and then we uh, brought these folks in if they were willing for a visit with the clinical pharmacist. Um, the visit lasted an hour. The pharmacist um, had, we had a, a guide for blood pressure management in patients with CKD. Um, so the pharmacist would refer to this guide and then provide the patient with a three-step titration plan. Um, they would also give them the blood pressure device and educate them on how to measure their blood pressure there in the clinic. Um, and they showed them how to enter their blood pressure in the electronic medical record through EPIC. Um, and then they uh, gave them a handout um, on the DASH diet. Um, if they did not have significant CKD, if they did have significant um, CKD, then they basically recommended a referral um, to the dietitian, and that was for people with GFR below 45. And we said the main outcome was going to be the number of patients who achieved gold blood pressure 
And we're also going to look at the change in systolic and diastolic blood pressures from baseline to six months. Um, we had other outcomes that we designated at the time. We wanted to see was the program appealing to the patients we uh, reach out to. Um, and so that was going to be based on the number of subjects who agreed to participate um, relative to the number of subjects identified by the registry screening. Um, we wanted to evaluate patient adherence um, to the protocol. Um, and very simplistically for this pilot, this was defined as the number of subjects who enter their home blood pressure uh, readings in the system, and then the number who actually show up for the six-month follow-up visit. We also wanted to evaluate provider acceptance and attitudes um, of, um, the, um, of this approach. Um, and, um, and that basically was based off of the number of provided providers who accept a pended order for pharmacist referral. And so the way it worked is we would identify people who, uh, who looked eligible. Um, we would ask them if they wanted to participate. And if they agreed, the nurse in clinic would actually pend an order for the pharmacist referral for self-management of blood pressure. Um, and then we conducted a, uh, a very um, brief um, preliminary provider survey just to see how people in general um, felt about this. We also had several process metrics. We just wanted to make sure that our processes worked. So um, after the referral was placed, we wanted to evaluate the number of participants who were actually seen by the clinical pharmacist and given a detailed titration plan. Um, the number of participants who were provided either the dietary education or had a formal dietary consult placed in the chart, and then the number who were provided with a blood pressure cuff and given instructions to manually enter the readings um, in uh, EMR. We also did some safety monitoring um, at three months. We had the renal nurse and the CKD clinic call subjects and just make sure they were doing okay. And she had a safety questionnaire that she um, ran through with them to make sure that you know um, they were doing okay and that there were no major issues that we needed to address. And so I will say that implementation of, of this was uh, pretty rocky. Um, you know, uh, the registry right off the bat did not want to work as it should. So we had our EPIC registry screening. We set it to patients seen in the uh, kidney clinic in the last one year. They had to have CKD based on the GFR criteria. And we even designated like they needed to have a, um, a kidney clinic um, specialist or provider assigned. And so the, um, and they had to have uh, a high blood pressure. And so the EPIC screening identified 116 individuals and we thought, well, that's great. That should give us our are 25, um, and then 99 out of those 116 actually failed um, screening when we went through and, and um, evaluated them manually. Um, it turned out 32 did not have a kidney provider, but somehow the registry thought they did. Um, uh, many of them either had a blood pressure cutoff that was really low or, or quite a bit um, high above our exclusion criteria. Um, there were several patients who had uh, more than one um, blood pressure agent. And then there were a bunch who actually had end-stage kidney disease and were on dialysis and, and hadn't been seen in the CKD clinic in a year. Um, 
And, um, and then we had a handful, some, not a handful, about 14 uh, that had a variety of, of different factors. Some were not English speaking, some had moved and left Colorado, so on and so forth. And so our, our lofty plan to just, um, you know, use a registry and be able to blast target individuals to come in and do this pretty much failed. Um, and we ended up enrolling five subjects uh, utilizing that approach. And so, you know, once we realized that, that wasn't going to work, which was actually fairly quick, we said, okay, well, we're going to do what we do um, when we screen for our clinical trials. Um, and at the time, our approach was, you know, we look at the next week's clinic or over the next two weeks, we see who may fit the criteria for a particular clinical trial. Um, we may target them with a letter or, or um, actually call them in Denver. We were allowed to cold call people. Um, or ambush them in clinic. And so we employed um, those, uh, those uh, techniques. And through that approach, over the course of um, a few months, we were able to enroll another um, 12. So the total enrolled was 17. And I'll tell you, we ended up losing six, uh, were lost to follow up, and we had um, only 11 um, come in for the six month follow up. Um, the baseline characteristics, the, the age um, was uh, um, on average 54. Um, we had 60%, um, um, nine um, out of the 17 were women. Um, we didn't do badly on black race. We had 50% um, of the participants were black. Um, the mean uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressures were 154 over 88. Uh, we had seven out of the 17 who had underlying uh, diabetes. And then, um, interestingly, I think we had um, several who, like on the initial screening, they looked like they met the GFR criteria, but then when they came in for their baseline visit, only uh, nine out of the 17 actually had chronic kidney disease. Uh, the mean GFR was 55. Um, on average, they were on the collectively they were on 2.4 antihypertensive agents, and you know a significant majority were on ACE ARB, calcium channel blockers, um, and uh, diuretics, which is what you would expect. Um, and then you know um, we uh, found at six months that only three, um, and those are in red out of the 17 achieved their goal, um, systolic and diastolic um, blood pressures um, as they were uh, designated. There were some who got close, oh, oops, sorry. Um, some who got close, like subject 13 um, did well on the um, systolic blood pressure, diastolic, their goal was less than 70, so they hadn't hit that. Um, and then we had, um, uh, you know, somebody, uh, another African-American, 144 over 70. Um, so overwhelmingly, the large majority of them had significant lowering of their blood pressure over six, six months. There were a couple of subjects where one, it looked like it, it increased um, and one really uh, didn't change, subject number um, 23. Um, we also had collected data on home blood pressure, what was the home blood pressure goal, not the office. And there were actually a larger number, there were about six who were able to achieve their home blood pressure goal. Um, so a little bit more um, than when you look at office blood pressure goal. 
Um, there were significant medication changes. So 15 of the 17 subjects had a new medication added when they met with the pharmacist. Um, there were three uh, medications that were discontinued. Um, we had eight up titrations overall that were made and we were able to track. And then there were actually two down, down titrations made uh, by a couple of patients. Um, Regarding the other outcomes, we said we would evaluate the appeal of the program to patients that we identified this. We couldn't really evaluate this fully, um, considering that the repository screening um, was a bust. Um, a patient adherence to the protocol, we had um, 12 out of the 11. So we had one subject who did not show for their six month visit, but they still entered blood pressures into the electronic medical record. Um, and so about 70% um, were adherent uh, by that definition and uh, only 11 out of the 17 uh, came for the six month visit. Um, when we looked at provider acceptance and attitudes, 16 out of 17 of the place consults were signed by a provider. Um, there was only one order that was not signed and that was really the first one um, and it was because there was a glitch in the system. It didn't appear as a pended order for the provider. And it was something, you know, we, uh, we noted and then immediately corrected and fixed. And then we had um, 16 who responded to the pre-implementation survey and 12 who responded to the post-implementation survey. And in our practice, um, we had, you know, what we counted as a total of 25 um, providers between physicians and advanced practice um, providers. Um, just some of the most um, relevant survey results um, suggested that overall uh, the providers in the system felt that, um, you know, the pharmacy services can support clinical decision uh, making. So, you know, there was one who disagreed, but the majority either agreed or strongly agreed um, during the pre-implementation survey. Post-implementation, there was a shift, a considerable, uh, a higher number um, felt that they strongly agreed. Um, looking at pharmacist-guided patient-driven uptitration of blood pressure medications and whether it would improve physician and provider satisfaction. Again, pre-survey, there was one provider, it just keeps doing that, who, who uh, um, did not think this would be useful, but by and large, um, many thought um, it would be. Um, and again, uh, similar to the first question, a, a larger proportion had shifted to strongly agree after implementation. And then um, we had asked if they thought lifestyle and dietary modifications were an integral part of blood pressure management. And, and overall, um, people uh, felt that, that they are. Looking at the process metrics, um, basically, you know, everybody who, who where, where a consult was placed, all of these participants were seen by the clinical pharmacist um, at the first visit, and they were given a detailed titration plan. When we pulled whether they were given dietary education or offered a formal dietary consult, they all were. Um, and then all the participants left the clinic with a blood pressure cuff and instructions um, on how to measure their blood pressure, as well as how to enter the readings um, into the system. In terms of safety, we had one patient who reported symptomatic hypotension. Um, and uh, in that case, their medication was held 
<clears throat> and their symptoms resolved. <clears throat> you know, the limitations of this study at the time were that obviously the registry screening um, it went down in flames. Um, and so we really couldn't evaluate the appeal of the self-management of hypertension. I will say also, I mean, that was a major premise of the, the proposal Kaiser had done um, some of this where they would go through large registry um, population health modification. They would identify these uh, patients who fit certain criteria, and then they would blast letters out in the system to say, oh, you qualify for an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, talk to your provider. So there are a lot of interventions that could be based off of um, the ability to screen through the registry as opposed to just patients coming to, to clinic. Um, and some of those interventions have been shown to work. And unfortunately, you know, that just did not work in our hands um, at all. Um, another limitation is that, you know, we defined adherence as entry of blood pressure readings into the electronic medical record. And we think this was underestimated. Um, the EMR uh, link that patients could go into and just supposed to simplistically be able to enter their blood pressure readings didn't work at the time. We had to go through a very careful review of this, pull instructions. We actually had a patient who was a computer engineer show up in the clinic and try to work through the link in clinic. And he was the one who figured it out. And we ended up um, having to make sure that we mailed out a different instructional sheet to our patients. Once we did that, um, it got easier, but I think our patients struggled um, with the EMR quite a bit in the beginning. And so, you know, this was a, a small thing we did at the time. Uh, we really did not think of this work as impressive. And before moving to Iowa, I hadn't even published it. Um, and then when I moved here, um, I identified a couple people through Cadre, um, particularly in the School of Pharmacy, uh, Barry Carter, who's now retired. And he was just going to retire when I first moved. So I connected with him, and he had studied um, pharmacist integration into the management of hypertension for years and had a, a large number of, of uh, grants um, through NHLBI on the topic. And so I went by, shared with him the data, um, said, you know, is this worth pursuing or not? And he was very enthusiastic about it. He thought, you know, we had glitches in our pilot. Um, the pilot was good because it's allowed us to identify, uh, you know, a lot of these issues and, and we could adapt our protocol. But he basically thought this was innovative because he felt like people have studied pharmacist management of hypertension over the years. Um, but had, and then people had studied self-management by the patient as well, but nobody had really married the two. And so it was extremely encouraging. So, and he connected me with uh, Carrie Canelti in the School of Pharmacy. And so we had a couple of meetings, went over the data, dusted it up and successfully published this in, in BMC pilot and uh, feasibility. And then we started to think about, well, what can we do with this data um, for, for future directions and applications? And, after stumbling um, through a couple of uh, grant applications, um, we landed on uh, wanting to do a clinical trial um, of 160 veterans with chronic kidney disease um, who would be randomized into either the pharmacist-guided self-management um, uh, um, approach or to just self-monitoring of home blood pressure and following the standard of practice. And we 
submitted a grant application to the VA. The aims um, were, uh, the first aim was to determine uh, the effectiveness of um, the self-management approach um, by evaluating the degree of blood pressure lowering um, in the intervention compared um, to um, the control. Um, aim two was to determine the acceptability of and the adherence um, by the patient to the pharmacist guided self-management approach, as well as to evaluate veteran factors that may influence the acceptability um, of uh, and the adherence to the treatment approach. And in aim three, um, we uh, propose to determine system factors that may impede or facilitate the implementation and sustainment of the core components of pharmacist-guided self-management of blood pressure in CKD patients. Um, we did um, propose to do this actually also at the university through the cardiovascular risk um, service um, with Corey Canelty, and we submitted a couple of R34 applications, which the last one actually got close, but just didn't get the money. Um, and then we put this one in, in, in this particular form to the VA. We thought the VA might even be a better place for this because the VA healthcare system has um, all of these um, primary care providers embedded in what they call patient-aligned care teams. And so it's the provider with case management, um, scheduling resources, social work, and a clinical pharmacist. And that comes assigned within the system. You don't have to go in and try to figure out where the pharmacist will, will come from. Um, and um, the pharmacist-guided self-management intervention consisted of the pharmacist conducting education for blood pressure management, measurement, um, education uh, to the patient for their medication protocol. Um, they taught the patient, uh, um, you know, both of these things, and then the patient um, is supposed to go home and monitor their home blood pressure and then follow the protocol and self-titrate their medications and then uh, follow up with the clinical pharmacist um, in six months and in 12 months. The, the control arm, um, the pharmacists would do the education for blood pressure measurements and they would tell patients what their target was. Um, patients would then basically go monitor their home blood pressure and notify their primary care provider or CKD doctor if the blood pressure was above the target. And then it would rely on the on the provider, um, you know, saying, okay, well, now we're going to add this medication or increase this dose for that medication. Um, and then patients would follow up per the usual care. And so um, AIM-1 analysis would, would take place at the end, um, but um, AIMs 2 and 3 would be ongoing analysis as the study uh, was progressing. Um, and so this is, you know, um, uh, a mixed methods um, approach, basically, where you have quantitative and qualitative assessments for what you are doing. Um, and um, it also involves, um, you know, adapting the PACT model to be able to deliver the intervention and the control in a standardized manner. And so it, it required um, coming up with an implementation um, strategy. And I have to say, I did not know uh, much about any of these things. I learned all of this from um, Corey Canelty, 
um, and some from Heather Reisinger, uh, who also is very helpful with the VA grant. And uh, the recommendation was to land on um, CIFR, which is the Consolidated Framework for Implementation um, Research. Um, and uh, uh, through the, this particular framework, um, you can basically implement and evaluate all of these different factors that may influence your uh, intervention. So you can evaluate your intervention characteristics. Is it based on strong evidence? Um, is it adaptable? How complicated is it? Is it going to cost the healthcare system uh, more? Um, you would evaluate your inner setting. So, you know, what are the structural characteristics of your care team and are they able to accommodate the additional workload? What's the culture? Do they like to apply new things? Do they care to control blood pressure? So on and so forth. Um, you can also evaluate outer settings, including policies, whether you meet them, resources, patient needs, um, and so on and, and so forth. You can um, talk to the individuals involved and conduct an assessment there. And also you can evaluate your implementation process and you can learn lessons from all of this that can help you further you know, evolve your, uh, uh, your intervention and learn how to implement it, reach to a point where you have an implementation um, strategy when all is said and done. Um, and just to go through the detailed intervention, so the patients would, uh, for the intervention visit, they would come in, um, they would meet with the clinical pharmacist, the clinical pharmacist will provide them with a blood pressure monitor, they basically educate them on how to measure their blood pressure, and um, they would tell them how often they should do it, when they should do it at home. Um, they would clarify to them, you know, what blood pressure goal and medication uh, changes, and when are medication changes indicated, um, you know, at what, what uh, point um, it you know, so what we tell, what we're telling subject, what we're planning to tell subjects is they need to have three out of 10 readings that are above their target blood pressure um, before they increase their, uh, their medications. And then they're also going to educate them on down titration of blood pressure medications in cases of acute illness. Um, labs will be ordered. As you know, we use ACE inhibitors and diuretics quite a bit in our patient population. And some of that does require lab follow-up. So the labs will be ordered by the clinical pharmacist um, and the patient will receive written instructions regarding what follow-up plans are needed for the labs. Uh, they will give them educational resources um, on uh, a low salt diet, although I don't know if that's, um, I guess there's recent data for congestive heart failure that suggests it doesn't work. So we need to you know, think about that, but the reviewers really wanted that. Um, and then the clinical pharmacist would put a very detailed note with what they have done, what the treatment plan is, um, what the goal home blood pressure is, the goal office blood pressure, and required lab monitoring. And they would forward that documentation um, to both the primary care provider and the CKD providers. Um, in the grant, we had indicated these are the medications that would be prescribed. Um, we uh, highlighted proteinuric CKD um, uh, you know, quite a bit because that's the, an area where I think blood pressure control and the types of medications you use can have a very high impact. And so as first line, if they're not on an ACE or an ARB, um, they would be started on one. Um, second, um, they'd get a diuretic. Third, 
uh, they could get um, a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker um, and then beta blockers um, and then direct vasodilators. Um, for those who had non-proteinuric CKD, we realized there is more flexibility. You could start with something like chlorphalidone or a dihydropyridine uh, uh, calcium channel blocker um, in the absence of heart disease. And, and so, you know, we, we would have to look case by case and, and determine um, how we go about, about those. For the inclusion criteria, you know, they have to be above the age of 18 or, or 18. Um, and for this grant, um, we decided to include people with stage four, and, three and four CKD, as well as, and, and mostly that's because um, patients with advanced CKD have been excluded um, from the McManus uh, trial. They only took people with stage three CKD at the time. Um, and then we would also include patients with stage two chronic kidney disease if they had evidence of um, proteinuria. So we were looking to target, you know, um, patients at high risk of cardiovascular disease and or CKD progression. Uncontrolled hypertension here will be defined as at least, um, at the average of at least two readings um, with a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 um, in the last um, six months. Um, and the subjects need to be able to give informed consent. Um, exclusion criteria, um, those with severe uncontrolled hypertension should probably be really under the direct care of a physician. So they're the, those with systolics greater than 180 are excluded. Um, people with resistant hypertension who are taking four or more medications would be also excluded because it doesn't give you a lot of room um, for titration. And at that point, it probably isn't really um, safe to just have the patient and the pharmacist um, do it without, um, you know, there probably would be the need for more frequent feedback um, from the physician. Um, we also excluded individuals with history of orthostatic hypotension. Um, um, and so that would be something that we would evaluate at the screening visit prior to randomization. Um, and uh, patients with uh, severe chronic kidney disease, and this is a typo, it should be EGFR less than 15. Um, life expectancy less than one year, severe liver disease, heart disease, um, patients who have severe cognitive decline due to dementia would also be excluded. Um, and then I don't know, all of our clinical trials exclude pregnant, breastfeeding, or unwilling to use adequate birth control, not that that would be very relevant at the VA. Um, the primary outcome is change in standardized office blood pressure at 12 months. We have secondary outcomes, which are, you know, um, change in home systolic blood pressure, change in conventional systolic blood pressure. Um, so, you know, um, we initially submitted this and we weren't very clear about which blood pressure um, would be our primary outcome. And um, around the time this underwent the first review, um, NKF um, came out, KDGO came out with their recommendations for um, CKD patients saying, we all need to try, strive to do standardized office blood pressure measurements. Um, you know, uh, patients need to come in, they can't have had food or had coffee, no exercise for, you know, 30 minutes to an hour prior to their visit. They need to sit quietly in clinic for yay many minutes and then go in and sit quietly and then have it measured. So they have, you know, very clear um, KDGO and AHA guidelines for blood pressure measurements in the office, which 
are there's a huge debate about whether those are realistic or not. Can that be done in clinical practice? So we hadn't really proposed this, but the reviewers felt that we needed to have it. So the primary outcome will be change in standardized office um, systolic blood pressure at um, 12 months. And this will have to be measured, you know, not by the PAC team, um, but patients are going to come in for um, their uh, um, screening visits, and that will be their baseline blood pressure visits, and it will be measured, the blood pressure, by a trained coordinator. And then their end-of-study visit is actually also going to happen and, and be conducted by a research coordinator um, so that we can get the standardized office um, blood pressure measurement. But we said we'll, we're still going to look in the charts and see what the conventional um, systolic blood pressure does as a secondary outcome and change in home uh, systolic blood pressure. We're also going to tally a number of visits to the emergency room for uncontrolled hypertension, evaluate the number of patients who achieve their blood pressure targets, and then the number of blood pressure medication titrations. For AIM-2, um, the evaluation is going to be done um, in phases. Um, the first phase will evaluate whether um, self-management of blood pressure is an acceptable intervention to the patients. And this will be done qualitatively through semi-structured interviews. The plan is to enroll 20 uh, subjects, 20 of those who agree to participate in the study and are enrolled. And those will be interviewed at least three months or more um, after their randomization so that they've had a flavor um, for the intervention and they can um, you know, speak to it um, uh, with some understanding of what it involves. And then we're also going to take, um, we assume that as we you know, call patients to participate, we're probably gonna have a good number who decline participation. Of those, we're gonna recruit 20 um, to conduct uh, semi-structured interviews to understand why um, this was not appealing to them. This qualitative work will be done in collaboration with Cadre. So the, they have a, a really nice um, core that does a lot of this qualitative um, work. Uh, they're very proficient at doing the semi-structured interviews and um, conduct, you know, gathering the data, analyzing it. Um, and so they will be helping um, with that. And then phase B um, will be to measure the adherence to the intervention. Um, and this will be done um, through a variety of, of methods. Most of it is going to be through looking through the chart. Um, the first will be to evaluate the medication possession ratio or the proportion of days covered um, using the medication refill patterns available through the VA pharmacy extracts. Um, we're also going to look at, um, you know, patient reported blood pressures, um, completion of the recommended labs, um, have they called and completed phone calls with the clinical pharmacist during the study period, and did they come in and complete the end of the study visit. Um, AIM-3, uh, and I should say if anybody's interested, I do have a, um, the semi-structured um, interview appendices, so I'm happy to share what those questions look like um, at the end. Um, and then um, for AIM-3, this will be a purely qualitative AIM, identifying um, 20 key stakeholders in the system, including the primary care provider, some of our CKD docs at the VA, and then the packed clinical pharmacists who will be delivering the intervention. 
Um, and the goal will be to try to um, evaluate, you know, how they feel about the available resources, um, you know, was the environment supportive of, of them uh, conducting the, uh, the intervention? Um, do, do we feel like that improved the um, efficiencies in clinic by removing the burden of blood pressure management off of the providers? Did it improve patient care? Um, so on and, and so forth. So this will also be all addressed through um, uh, semi-structured uh, interviews um, with the stakeholders. Um, and so, you know, the first grant was uh, reviewed, scored, they kind of liked it, kind of didn't, we revised it and resubmitted it, and on the second attempt, it was scored really, really well. We heard that it was scored at the fifth percentile. Still don't have a notice of award, so we don't really know if we're getting the money, but we, we hope uh, that um, we will. Um, and so to summarize, Sorry, I stuck a little bit. There we go. To summarize, we're going to conduct a randomized clinical trial utilizing a mixed methods approach. Um, work to evaluate the effectiveness of pharmacist-guided self-management of blood pressure medication. Um, we also want to see if this is appealing to patients, and once they enroll, are they able to adhere to it? Um, we do want to try to understand the healthcare system barriers and facilitators for implementing this, and then if successful, then um, we will have to think about how we implement this um, across um, the VA. And that's it. That's my, my talk for this time. Thanks, Diana. Sure. Diana, I, uh, it's great that you're taking this on and uh, I realize it's been a long uh, project uh, to, to get to. Um, if you are interested, I have a few suggestions that things that I learned from from a practical perspective on um, on how to do this uh, uh, from the diabetes project that uh, we had with uh, home monitoring. Yeah, sure, Moni, absolutely. Some of the things uh, that uh, you know will help and no notice that uh, really make a difference is you have to have frequent touches with those patients and not just. Uh, the three month, the six month or whatever frequency uh, of uh, visits you have, you really have to have constant communication with the patient. Yeah. The second so, thing is. Yeah, Moni, so I, I completely agree with you on that. And so we, I didn't include, you know, all of that in, um, in the talk, but we're going to have, you know, a touch with them at one month um, and then three months, we have six months, nine months. Those are the safety visits. Um, we're gonna try hard not to be the, the ones reaching out to the patients continuously because the idea behind this is we do wanna see, you know, we want it to be really driven by the patient, but we have tried hard to build in wherever we could in the protocol um, touches, you know, touches with, uh, um, with the patients. The interviews for the ones who get um, selected for the, um, the interviews, you know, they will be engaged also quite a bit um, three months in and, and onward. The second thing is uh, asynchronous communication is better than synchronous communication because you might not be always on the same page as far as uh, timing of uh, communication with the patient. So um, that, that is something else uh, that I found uh, very useful. The third thing is uh, 
phone calls are really an efficient way to uh, to communicate with the patient because uh, you might be able to reach them or not. Uh, you can call them only during uh, your work hours. Uh, when you call them, they may not have the data available to communicate. Uh, sure. to you. Yeah. So uh, the the best way is if you have. Uh, and you know that's something uh, obviously more expensive, but like a smart blood pressure monitor that connects with a web platform and uh, where you can look at the data and you can send messages through that uh, monitor uh, to the patient back and forth. So bi-directional uh, messages uh, on something like that, that really uh, works well. Uh, the last thing uh, that I found it's helpful is uh, to have somebody that's always available uh, to basically uh, look at the communication with those patients and answer questions and uh, uh, really give directions to them. Uh, because otherwise, if you have one pharmacist here, one pharmacist there, you know, uh, the, there is not somebody assigned to the project on, on a you know, regular basis that, that's doing this day in and day out, uh, really that doesn't work uh, as well. Yeah, thanks, Moni. So it's gonna be, a, um... Uh, it's not going to be all of the pharmacists in the pact. Um, so um, the chief of pharmacy here um, and I are going to sit down and select maybe three or four that, that would be um, involved. Um, in addition, the project is going to have actually like 1.5 FTE towards a coordinator. So, um, and those are the, the people who will, you know, do a lot of the patient engagements and contact the patients and follow their medical records so on and so forth. I completely agree with you regarding the phone calls. Um, you know, we put that in as phone calls in, in the first application and I actually thought it would be um, a, a point of contention. I thought it would be something that we'd have to resolve, you know, revise. Um, and they never really, um, uh, uh, you know, brought that up. So we left it there. Um, but the VA healthcare system, I don't know, we do have, um, and I'll have to look into how we can we can do that. We do have some of those devices that would simply kick um, the blood pressure readings into the system and, and have them show up in CPRS. Um, and we just were, you know, on the first application, we were lazy. We didn't really look into that. And then we also have um, a vet text uh, messaging system that can be used, which the veterans actually seem to like quite a bit. So we initially thought, you know, that would be something we'd have to fix, but when they didn't bring it up, we just <laughs> kept quiet. We actually did a time study on the phone call and uh, for the diabetes educator, and we found out that about, and, and I have actually the dollar, dollar numbers as well, but we found out that about 40 to 50% of the time that they spent in phone call phone calls it's basically wasted time and uh, because, because of some of the reasons uh, that I just yeah that you mentioned yeah, yeah no that makes perfect sense to me I appreciate that thank you other thoughts comments questions well when I was I've heard this a couple times now course, but as I was listening to it this time, I was remembering that uh, when I was at Mayo, they had this very slick setup where people would come in and they'd hook them up with like a 24-hour inventory blood pressure monitor. Yeah. And patients would, at the end of the day, package that up and send it back and it, it all worked very smoothly. That would give you some extra data that I think would be, would be useful potentially if you could figure out how to work something like that. Yeah. 
We can see benzo. We have not been successful in, in getting ambulatory blood pressure uh, monitoring um, at the VA uh, uh, period. Um, so we'll have to see, you know, so we, I stayed completely away from it, but I can, you know, I mean, Mayo, they, they are the masters of this. You, you show up and, and they, uh, they definitely, <laughs> they give you your device and then you send it back and it works. We just don't necessarily, and I don't know why at the VA, we haven't been able to do ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. It's something to look at. Uh, when we submitted this as an R34, it, that actually was a comment that we got, Ben. Um, they wanted us to include ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. The Sorry, VA could be more likely to pay for this. Uh, one of the measures that you can look, and uh, Melissa actually mentioned that uh, in uh, her uh, comment there would be uh, ED visits. Because yeah. uh, if, you, if you are able to prove that uh, ED visits, you can decrease ED visits and hospital admissions, uh, that you know will incentivize uh, the VA or any, any other organization that you're asking for funding to, to pay for it. To pay for it, yeah. So those, uh, so Melissa, I'm just looking at the chat now, and I I see that. So, um, so side effects of medications, hypotension. So those will be done. Um, um, you know that data will be collected as the safety assessments. Um, so there's the questionnaire the coordinator will go through at the one month, um, three month, six, nine, etc. Visits, and then there is a component of the safety assessment that will look at um, emergency room visits for low blood pressure and, and AKI, et cetera. Um, I think, you know, the thing we hadn't really, um, in Denver, when we did this with our small number of patients, we didn't really talk to them about down titrating their medications, but it was interesting. Some of them did down titrate. Um, we had two, uh, you know, medication reductions based on what they learned um, from us, uh, from the clinical pharmacist during the clinic visit. So, this time around, we did embed, you know, part of the education is going to be when to decrease, uh, not just when to increase. And I completely agree with you. I think that that might actually improve um, rates of uh, symptomatic hypotension resulting in emergency room um, visits. Other questions? All right, well, it's one o'clock, so um, thank you all for your time, and I appreciate that we are excited about this project. So when, when we do, um, I mean, I'm being optimistic and hoping that fifth percentile does get me the money. So <laughs> if we actually really do get to do the work, I will let the people at the, at the VA uh, know. Thanks, guys. Talk to you now. Yep, bye.